Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Okay, so beginning in the book of Joel. So first of all, I have a little bit of an introduction. Uh, Who was Joel? You know, there's many uh, Joels uh, listed in the Bible. We even have one here in our church, um, but I don't think he's the author of this book. Um, He's not that old. Uh, But, you know, that was a common Hebrew name. And so the only thing that we know for certain is what it tells us there in the book of Joel, that Joel was the son of Pethuel. Now, we also know that he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He refers to Jerusalem. He refers to the offerings over and over in in his prophecy. So uh, most scholars believe he was a southern uh, prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And... Most scholars also agree that he prophesied during the reign of Joash, King Joash of Judah, which was uh, 835 B.C. to 796. Well, we don't know, again, we don't know that for sure either. So if Joel uh, Joel did in fact prophesy during the reign of Joash, it kind of gives you an idea of what the conditions were that Joash was starting, or that Joel was, uh, you know, prophesying uh, to. And so the story of how Joash became king, it's a very intriguing story if you've never heard it or never read it. But it goes back to Jehoram, who was a very wicked king of Judah. And Jehoram took uh, to be his wife a, a lady by the name of Athaliah. Now, Athaliah was a granddaughter of the king, uh, King Omri, who was the wicked, very wicked king of Israel. The, the two nations had separated. You had the southern tribe of Judah and, and Judah and Benjamin, but they were called Judah. And then you had the ten northern tribes. Omri was the king of the northern tribes. Um, so Athaliah was uh, his granddaughter, and that would make him the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, if you know Jezebel, that was a very wicked uh, woman in the Bible as well. So this, that was her background. Well, Jehos, uh, Jehoram actually was the son of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, was a very good king. But apparently his son Jehoram was not. In fact, Jehoram murdered all of his brothers. And uh, he walked, the Bible says that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel that caused Israel to sin. So he was a very wicked, a wicked king. And God struck Jehoram with an incurable intestinal disease, and he died. Well, his youngest son, Ahaziah, became king in his place, and he also acted very wickedly. In fact, his mother, Athaliah, counseled him to do some very wicked things, and uh, Going through the story, basically Jehu killed Ahaziah. You know they could write a, they could make a really action-packed movie, lots of drama and intrigue with these stories. It's amazing. Well, when Athaliah knew that her son Ahaziah was dead, she started murdering all of the royal heirs to the throne, and uh, uh, she almost accomplished that completely. But Ahaziah's sister, by the name of Jehoshabeth, she hid one-year-old Joash and his nurse in a bedroom. And she happened to be married to one of the priests of the Lord. His name is Jehoiada. And uh, they ended up hiding Joash in the house of the Lord for six years. Now, during those six years, Athaliah, this very wicked lady, she assumed the throne of Judah. 
And uh, at the end of six years, Jehoiada gathered a group of men and priests and they conspired against Athaliah and they proclaimed seven-year-old Joash king of Judah. And then they went ahead and killed Athaliah. So here's this young seven-year-old king of Judah. This is the time that Joel prophesied at some point during his reign. And Jehoiada was a very godly priest and he counseled Joash in the ways of the Lord, and Joash restored the house of the Lord. Um, at some point during Athaliah's reign, uh, she, uh, or excuse me, in Ahaziah's reign, he and his brothers, they broke into the house of God, and they also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. So they, they desecrated the temple, basically. So there was Baal worship as well as worshiping Jehovah there in the temple. Um, well, Joash walked in the ways of the Lord uh, during, his, during the reign of, uh, or during the, the lifetime of Jehoiada, who was kind of like a counselor to him. But after Jehoiada died, there were these leaders of Judah that counseled Joash to, list to, uh, to, do, to act wickedly, basically, and, and he listened to them. And the Bible says they left the house of the Lord and served wooden images and idols. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the environment where Joel, Joel was called to prophesy to um, the southern tribe of Judah, uh, southern kingdom of Judah. Well, at some point during the reign of Joash, the disaster that we're going to talk about here in just a few moments, described in Joel 1, took place and it was a locust invasion. And uh, God called Joel to use the disaster in chapter 1 as an opportunity to prophesy approaching judgment, uh, call God's people to repentance, and also to give them hope of the coming day of salvation that would soon follow, or that would come following after judgment. Joel happens to be the first writing prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, there were other prophets before him, but he was the first one to write his prophecies down to be recorded. Um, there was one earlier writing prophet by the name of Obadiah, but he prophesied to Edom, not to Judah. Um, he was probably a contemporary with Elisha and Elijah, and there were probably a few others like Amos and a few others. Um, but he was, again, he was the first to record his prophecies for Judah. Now, the book of Joel is only three chapters, but there's a theme that runs through the whole thing, and it's called the Day of the Lord. It's mentioned five times in the, in the book of Joel, and then that day is referred to. So actually there's six times that the day of the Lord is mentioned in the, books, uh, the book of Joel. Now the day of the Lord is a term that's found in both the Old and the New Testament. And basically the day of the Lord, it, it can refer to any period of time in which God directly intervenes in the course of history, in man's history, either in judgment or in mercy. Uh, the day of the Lord, you can think of it this way. It's a contrast to man's day. Right now we're in man's day. Man, you know, we, we, we're, we think we're in control of our destiny. But every once in a while, God intervenes and changes the course of history. And uh, just when mankind thinks he's in control, God does something that just it, it blows everybody away. Well, the name Joel is Yahweh is God. And uh, it's very fitting uh, when you think of the theme of this chapter, that God is in control, that God controls destiny. God is sovereign over the works of history. <clears throat> it's interesting. When I was 
preparing yesterday, I, I took a lunch break, and I, and I thought, you know, I just want to watch some TV, and so we've got Netflix, and I, I was looking for something to watch, and I saw this History Channel special thing about secret societies. Have you ever heard about them? They talk about the Skull and Crossbones, a Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergs, you know, all these secret societies. And, and uh, you know, they've, they had this guy that, you know, was talking about how they control everything that goes on in the world, you know, the monetary system, the governments, they appoint presidents and all this stuff. And, and uh, it was very intriguing and, and kind of frightening when you think about it. But in light of this chapter, in light of this book... They can do whatever they want to do. God is still in control. What a comfort that is for you and I to know that, you know? No matter what happens, God is in control. God is on the throne. God is sovereign. You know, <clears throat> the, uh, the book of Hosea, we, we studied that before we went into the New Testament. And uh, Hosea is a very fascinating prophecy as well. And that, that really revealed the heart of God. It revealed the heart of God, uh, you know, as, as he feels as his, as his children, the children of Israel, how they, they committed a spiritual adultery. And in and, and the, the picture, you just get, get the sense of God's heart, his broken heart over the, the, the adultery of his, of his people when they follow other, other gods. Well, Joel reveals the hand of God in controlling human events. Um, the day of the Lord, I mentioned um, it, it it can refer to, um, where did I say? I've got to go back to my notes here. Oh, any, any period of history where God is in control, where God intervenes. But the day of the Lord can also, it can either be an ex, a specific day, like right now we're reading about, we're going to read about it in chapter 1 about a specific day, but it can also refer to an extended period of time. For example, from the rapture of the church through uh, the tribulation to the end of the millennium. That is referred to as the day of the Lord as well. Um, if you can picture Joel standing on a mountaintop, and he's looking off into the horizon. Have you ever done that before? And, and you can see this really big mountain range way off into the distance. And he's focused on that. Um, he's ne- not necessarily focused on the, the little hills and the valleys in between. He's just looking way off into the distance on the horizon at this mountain in the, in, that's looming in the distance. That's kind of like the book of Joel. Joel is he's going to be writing about an event that, is occur- that has just occurred right there. It's contemporary. It just happened, this locust invasion. But he's also looking far down in history to the end of days, to the ultimate day of the Lord. And he's not necessarily concerned with the Babylonian invasion, the Assyrian invasion, you know, the, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. He's looking beyond to the day of the Lord. And so that's kind of the way the book of Joel is, uh, is constructed. So let's begin here. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation what the, lo- uh, what the chewing locust left, the swarming lo- locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. We'll stop right there. Joel starts his prophecy with the word of attention. It's, Hear this. Listen to this. When I was in the military, 
when they wanted to get your attention, they would announce, you know, now hear this, and then they'd give this announcement, you know, whatever it is, you know. Um, and that was like, hey, stop what you're doing and pay attention. That's exactly what the word of the Lord is saying here. You better stop and listen to this. And no doubt that locust invasion, as we'll see, it had everyone's attention. I mean, everyone was aware of the disaster, but they weren't aware of the cause. What was the cause? The cause was God's hand of judgment. That was the cause of that. So he first addresses the elders, and then, which were, would have been the older men in the Judah, but then all the inhabitants. He says, as anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers. And you can imagine these elders, you know, they could talk about the good old days or boy, you know, we, we had this really bad time when I, you know, I used to walk uphill to synagogue, you know, two days and back downhill, you know, I mean, you know, both directions uphill and you know how people get, right? Um, their stories kind of get just fantastic, you know, as things go on. Well, anyways, he says, has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your father? So he's going back two generations. And the answer is no, nothing's happened this bad for two generations. And then he says, tell your children about it and let your children, children tell their children and their children another generation. So he's going back two generations and he's going forward three generations. So basically he's saying, nothing like this has happened for five generations. Now, swarms of locusts were not uncommon in the Middle East. They're still not uncommon out there. Um, but this particular one was the worst in five generations. You know, I, I don't know a whole lot of stories about my grandparents. I know a little bit about them. Um, but one time in about the mid-90s, uh, my parents came out to Minnesota to visit us, and I just got this idea, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to set up a tripod with a video camera, and I'm just going to interview my parents. And, and so one evening, in fact, we did it for two evenings, I believe, for hours, I just, I just set this tripod up, and I just said, hey, what, was, what were things like when you were growing up and stuff? And my mom and my dad, they just started talking and talking and talking. They grew up in the Netherlands, and they grew up during World War II, and so they, they remember all this stuff going on with the, with the Jews and stuff. And um, in fact, my mom's side of the family hid Jews. And so there was some fascinating stories. And uh, so they're, they're going on and on. And, and I recorded that, and I have it for posterity. Now it's on VHS, so I don't know what I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, we have it. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, here Joel is telling his generation to tell their children and two more successive generations about the hand of God. And, you know, that's such an important thing for parents and grandparents to pass on. What's God done in your life? How has God intervened in your life? And to pass that on to your children and even your grandchildren. I've got grandchildren now, so I can sit down with grandchildren and share things with them. And I know my wife does that quite a bit. She sits down and reads the Bible with them because uh, she watches them during the day quite frequently. It's so important to pass down to the next generation how God has intervened in your life to share those things with your, with your children. You know, just sitting down for a conversation as a family, it's pretty rare. That's one, of the, that's one of the reasons why we do Wednesday night potlucks here is we gather together. It's not a huge group, but we gather together. It's almost like a family, and we have a family dinner together. We talk about how your week's been going and stuff, and then we have some devotions together, Bible study together, and a time of worship. It's great. But sitting down for a family is so rare. In fact, people are so overly committed and then you've got the TV and now the Internet and smartphones. You know, you see everybody's sitting there looking at, 
You're smart. I, you know, I go to a doc. I'm in physical therapy right now for my back, and I'm sitting there in the in the office, and everyone is sitting, myself included, because hey, you know, everybody's sitting at their. Nobody's looking at anybody else or talking. Everybody's just you know playing with their their smartphones, and it's amazing. Well, you know, people wonder why their children are so alienated from them, or so they they you know it's like I, I didn't know that this happened and stuff. So, well, it's because you haven't been involved with them. You, you know, it's amazing. So. Anyways, Joel t- says, hey, tell this to your children. Have them tell their children. And for three generations, nothing like this has ever happened. And now he describes the devastation. He says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, the King James Version for the chewing locust calls it the palmer worm. And when I did my word study, it says it does a palmer worms, and I don't know what they are, but they don't normally devour an entire crop. So this palmer worms, whatever, they, they, they didn't destroy the, the entire crop. They left some stuff left over, basically. But then you've got the swarming locust, and, and basically it just means locust or grasshopper. And so they're talking about these, these migrating species of desert locusts, basically. Uh, so then they ate. And then maybe they didn't need everything, and they left something behind. And then the crawling locust, the King James Version calls it the canker worm, and it's a caterpillar. It's the early unwinged stage in the life of a locust. So then they ate something. And then maybe they left something behind. And then finally the consuming locust, which the King James Version also calls it a caterpillar, um, you know, that finished off whatever was left over. So basically it was utter, total devastation. Now, we don't know if that was four different kinds of locusts or if it was just four stages in the life of a locust. I I, I have no idea. But the main point was they left nothing. They completely stripped the land bare to the point where it was just total, utter devastation. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. In other words, you know, wake up, become aware of your situation, and act accordingly. And how were they to act? They were to weep. You know, disasters like this, they're meant to get our attention. It's amazing after 9-11 how people, all of a sudden, they were spiritually minded. You know, they were thinking, whoa, you know, God bless America and all this stuff. Well, it didn't last very long. But that sometimes when God intervenes with human history, something like that, it's to get our attention. And apparently, the locust invasion occurred in the fall of the year because the new wine was cut off. The new wine, it referred to the fresh crop of, of grapes that was made into wine. And uh, the grape harvest was the last harvest in the fall. So obviously they were impacted. So it looks like it was around the fall when this invasion happened. Verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. And so you get the picture. Basically, you know, the physical effects of a locust plague, plague passing through. I mean, it's stripped, even the bark is eaten off the trees. It's just, it's just white, you know, the, the center, the meat of the tree. That's all that's left, basically. But when you look at that, it also it seems to be a picture of the spiritual side to God's judgment of sin. 
Very fascinating when you look at the words, the, the, what they mean. Well, it says he has laid waste my vine. That word waste means an object of horror or an astonishment. It describes, you know, God calls Israel when they're in disobedience an object of horror. They'll become an object of horror to the nations around them. It causes them to be an object of scorn. Anybody remember Jared, the spokesman for, for Subway? Boy, he's an object of scorn right now because of his sin that's been revealed. Um, that, that's what this is picturing. And when God calls something my vine, what he's speaking about is Israel or Judah. Isaiah 5, that's a parable of the vineyard, and it's referring specifically to is the nation of Israel. So it, it's speaking about his people. He says, he has ruined my fig tree. Again, God's fig tree is also an allusion to Israel in Hosea 9.10. And Jesus even spoke about it in the parable in Luke 13, the parable of the unfruitful fig tree. He says, he has ruined my fig tree. That word ruined means splintered or broken up into small pieces. It, 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 it describes the effects of judgment. It's a shattering, the brokenness that it causes. You know, you're all prideful and puffed up, and then, and then judgment happens, and it just brings you low. It breaks you up. It shatters you. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. And if you think of that, it's it, the shame and the nakedness. It's been exposed. There's, no more, there's nothing to cover. It's just it's there. Just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they realized they were naked in the Garden of Eden. There was nothing they could do. So then they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. They tried to hide their nakedness. You know, that's the first picture of man's attempt to, uh, to, for religion, basically. Man's attempt to try to cover his own sin. You put the fig leaves on. Fuzzy fig leaves. That wouldn't be very comfortable. Fuzzy fig leaves with sap and stuff and all that stuff. I've, I used to climb in fig trees in California when I grew up, and I know what it's like. They're, they're big leaves, and they get, they get this milky sap, and they're fuzzy. It wouldn't be comfortable for underwear, I tell you. Anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> I get these mental pictures in my mind when I read stuff like that. But, but that was man's first attempt at, at covering themselves. But now they, they've been stripped bare. They've been naked. There's... there's Nothing's hidden. It's all open. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Again, the picture here would be of a girl betrothed to a man before the wedding's consummated and he dies. Lament for the, for the loss of the husband of your youth. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. When it's speaking about the grain, the new wine, and the oil, it's referring to all those things, those ingredients that the priests used in their sacrifices and their offerings in the temple. Uh, They could no longer offer the drink offerings of wine. They could no longer take the grain offerings and mix it with the olive oil and present that to the Lord. They could no longer light the lampstand with oil. And it's interesting because the only time they stopped was when they ran out of grain, wine, and oil. And yet the temple had been desecrated at some point. That's interesting. Apparently, Athaliah, even though they had, she had allowed them to, instigated them to destroy the temple or dis- desecrate the temple, yet she allowed the priests to still go through the motions of religious ceremony. It wasn't a threat. You know, Satan doesn't mind religion. He's more interested in corrupting it 
than eliminating it. He's more interested if you're just focused on other stuff and you're still going to church, but you're, you know, your life, you're still following other things than if you're truly, truly, your heart, you're just loving the Lord and worshiping him and following him. You can go, you can go through the motions all you want. He doesn't care. During the great and terrible day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, there's going to be a church in existence. It's in the book of Revelation. It's the church will be likened to the church of Laodicea. If you ever read that in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, Jesus describes them. They say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, this is the only church in Revelation where Jesus is not among the lampstands. He's actually outside of the church. He's outside. He says, I'm knocking on the door. Let me in. So there, there, there's going to be religion, religious ceremony. There's going to be some semblance of a church during those last days. But it's going to be an apostate church. Jesus won't even be in it. Verse 11. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So not only was there an an invasion of locusts, but there was a subsequent drought afterwards. Um, And you see here, when God's hand moves in judgment, first of all, we talked about there was scorn. We were an object of scorn. Then there's brokenness. Then there's nakedness and shame, you know. Um, and then you can't keep that facade of fake religion, you know. That just it doesn't religious ceremony doesn't do it anymore. And there's no more fruit. And finally, joy withers. Isn't that a picture when we're in sin? All those things that occur. Well, he tells them how to respond to God's hand of judgment. Look at verse thirteen. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He says, gird yourselves and lament. To gird meant, you know, like when you girded up your loincloth, basically what it meant was you basically took your 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 kind of long flowing clothing, and you tied it up, kind of like a diaper sort of, so that you could work. You, you know, it's like rolling up your sleeves would be a, be a modern day interpretation of that. Roll up your sleeves, let's get to work. And so what he's basically saying is, roll up your sleeves, get to work repenting. Get to work putting on a sackcloth in humility and mourning. And in, in the Old Testament, that's what they would do when they were mourning either mourning over their sin or mourning over the death of someone, they put sackcloth on, sackcloth and ashes quite frequently. That was an outward expression of inner humility and mourning. And it's expressing humility and and sorrow not over the judgment, but over the sin that caused the judgment. That's such an important thing. You know, we used to do Bible studies in the in the jail, and there's a lot of guys in jail that are sorry that they're busted. (laughs) They're they're bummed out that they've that you know they're not providing for their family. Now they're in jail, and all these things are happening. They're bummed about being caught, but what's important is you're bummed about sinning against the Lord. That's the issue. That's that's where that's when your life changes, and when you finally grieve over the sin that you've caused. 
Notice that the priests are the first to be called to express their sorrow because they are to set the example for the people. The next thing they're to do is to consecrate a fast. Basically, that means not eating. It means making getting right with God a priority more important than even the most basic activity of eating. It's so important for you that you want to repent of your sins. You, you humble yourself that you, you can't even think of food. You just, you just got to get on your knees before the Lord. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. It's calling God's people to come together, the leaders of the people, the priests, in fact, everyone, to go to the house of the Lord. And when there's, a, when there's a big disaster, man, you see that happening. People gather together in a church to pray, to, to seek the Lord. And that's what he says finally here, and cry out to the Lord. You know, to humble yourselves, to be sorrowful over your sin, to fast, to gather together with God's people, and finally to cry out to the Lord for his mercy. That was all that they could do in the case of this disaster. I mean, everything was destroyed. There, there was nothing that they could do to fix their situation. You know, sometimes with our nation now, we're, we're, we're getting to a point where, you know, our government still tries to fix the financial situation. There's going to come a point where things are not going to be able to be fixed. And God's going to judge us as a nation there's going to be this national judgment that's going to occur. And, and it's, it'll get to the point where there's nothing we can do. All that we can do is cry out in humility and ask for the Lord's mercy. And that's all that he wants us to do, just to cry out to him for mercy. In fact, that's exactly what the Ninevites did. Remember the Ninevites? They were a ruthless group of people, a nation of people. They were very bloodthirsty. The Israelites hated them. They feared them. And God called one of his prophets, Jonah, to go proclaim judgment against them. And you know the story. Jonah didn't want to want to go. He got swallowed by a fish. He ended up going afterwards um, anyways. And so he preached. He walked three days through the city preaching God's judgment. He wasn't preaching repentance. He just preaching God's judgment. And it says there, I'm going to read it to you. In Jonah 3, 5, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor herd of a herd nor flock taste anything, so don't eat. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And it says, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Isn't that interesting? A heathen nation knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly, man, we've got to stop our sinning. We've got to get humble. We've we got to humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord. They, didn't know, they weren't taught how to do that. They weren't, they weren't Israelites. They were a heathen nation. They knew exactly what to do, but God's people, did they do that? Man, history tells us otherwise. In fact, Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 12, verse 41, he says, the men of, men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. 
Man. Verse 15. Alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, if you look at the verb tenses before this, before verse 15 is talking about this locust invasion, it had already happened. That, God's, that day of the Lord, that day of God's hand of judgment had already occurred. And now he says, uh, the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come. So now Joel is, again, he's looking forward to another day of the Lord. It shall come. And of course, he'll get into it much more greater detail when we start chapter 2. But verse 16, he goes back to their current situation. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. So not only did they have a locust invasion, not only did they have a drought, but now apparently they also had a fire that occurred. I know out back west, you know, they've got big, big time problems with droughts. My mom lives in California and I, we talk to her every once in a while. She's telling us how dry it is and stuff. And when they get a fire out there, it's bad news because it's like it's the, the dry grass is like gasoline. It just it goes crazy. Interesting here. You know, I don't, this is my own personal beliefs, and you can believe differently, but I don't believe in man-made climate change or global warming. And maybe some people do. That's not, a, not an issue if you do or don't. But in this passage, what fascinates me, the animals are suffering from the locust invasion, from the drought, and now from a fire. And what caused this locust invasion? What caused this drought and fire? The sin of the people of Judah. So maybe there isn't man-made climate change, but this does seem to indicate that there are natural disasters that are a direct result of sin, and it affects not only mankind but animals. So it could be like man-made disasters, or man-made God's judgment on people, or... The, the, the world around us. I don't know. <laughs> Just speculating. But you know what? The point is, oftentimes when you and I were tempted to sin and we commit sin, so often we think, you know, it's just me. I, I'm not affecting anybody else. But the truth of the matter is, sin affects much more than yourselves. If you're married, it affects your spouse. If, you're, if you have children, it'll affect your children. It, it affects this fellowship. If you're in sin, it affects this fellowship. Sin, the consequences of sin, they affect more than just yourselves. And sometimes we don't even think about that. What also is fascinating to me is that he's going through this list of the animals that are affected by this. And he says there, even the flocks of sheep suffer. And, you know, I was reading a commentary because I'm like, why does he refer to it like, you know, all this is happening and even the flocks of sheep. And, and basically they were saying, well, the sheep, they don't need to eat as much as the cattle. And so it's, it's just describing the utter devastation that even the sheep can't find it. But, you know, any time that I read about sheep in the Bible, I always there's this picture that always pops into my mind. And that is how Jesus talks about, you know, God talks about his people as the sheep of his pasture. And so I wonder, hmm. Could there be something there? Even the sheep 
are affected by, they suffer the punishment. And you know, again, I, I personally believe the church will not be around during the Great Tribulation. I believe the church will be called out before the tribulation begins. But I also know that there have been times in the past and there's going to be times in this world where God's hand of judgment is going to strike in different ways, in different forms, and Christians won't be spared. Christians won't be spared. You know, when natural disasters have struck recently in our own nation, you know, it's not just the homes of the wicked that catch fire. It's not just the homes of the, of the wicked that are swept away and mudslides are flooded. It happens to Christians too. And it's not necessarily because they're being judged. It's just we're in a sinful world. You know, and so sometimes, you know, I, again, talking about the rapture, I, I think things are going to get really tough before the rapture. So I, I don't think we're going to be spared from everything, but we will be spared from God's hand of judgment against a Christ-rejecting world. That's my personal beliefs. But, you know, as Christians, you know, we're praying for the Christians that are being persecuted in the Middle East. And, you know, of course, we want the, we want the persecution to stop and everything. But God is using that to, to reach many Muslims to Christ. Um, uh, Pastor Abedini, who's been in that prison for so long, we, we've been praying for his release too. And, and, and he's had, God's using him. I mean, God's using his life. His life he's like Paul saying, you know, I'm, I'm poured out like a drink offering. He's, he's one of those people that could literally say that. I'm being poured out for the Lord. But God's using that life, that, that disaster that's in, that he's going on, the suffering, to reach Muslims to Christ. And so sometimes we look at things that happen and we say, why do, why do things happen to me? Well, God might be using, maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe God is trying to reach someone around you and, and to minister. So don't always say it's a bad thing, right? In Luke chapter 13, fascinating scripture it says there, I'm going to read it to you. It says, There were present at that season some who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, and kill them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, sometimes we go through and we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But that's the wrong question. The question is, if your life is cut short, is your heart right with the Lord? That's, that's the question. That's what Jesus said. They're like, why did, they happen to the, why did those things happen to those people? Were they worse sinners? Jesus said, no, no, no. That's not the issue. That's not the question. The question is, unless you repent, you'll perish. And so that's, the, that's the, the main thing for us today, man. If our life is cut short, is our heart right with the Lord today? You know, repentance, it's such an important thing. Recognizing that we're in sin recognizing we've offended God and then, and then the, to, to sorrow over that sin and then to do everything you can. Stop what you're doing and repent of your sin and turn to the Lord and cry out for mercy. And praise God. You know, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's faithful. If you cry out to him in mercy, man, he's a merciful God. He will extend mercy to you. 
So we're going to stop there because I want to get into Joel uh, chapter 2. He starts looking at uh, that ultimate day of the Lord. And so the rest of the, the book of Joel is really going to be kind of focused on that. So kind of want to save that for our next study. So if you want to go ahead and stand up, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the story, the, the prophecies of Joel. And, and Lord, I, I believe that some of those things that Joel foresaw, they haven't occurred yet, Lord. And so they have a very, uh, they're very uh, relevant to us here today. And so I just thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that uh, even though sometimes we might be overwhelmed by the news that we hear, Lord, things that happen, disasters that strike, Lord, uh, things that are out of our control, Father, that, that, that overwhelm us. But, Lord, what a comfort to know that your hand controls our destiny, Lord, that, Lord, you are in control of, of history, that you are sovereign. And so we just we thank you for that, Lord, and we worship you before that, and we stand in awe before you. Father, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that, Lord, if there is sin in our lives right now, Father, that your spirit spoke to us this morning, that, Lord, we would do everything uh, we would make that the highest priority of our day is to get right with you, Lord Jesus. And so I just lift that up to you. I pray, Father, that you would just move in our hearts this morning. We thank you for your word, and we love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.